Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Hello and welcome back to the Power Hour, the Heritage Foundation Center for Energy, Climate and Environments podcast. I'm your host, Jack Spencer, and I'm joined today by my current but not very long into the future colleague, Sean Skinner. Sean, welcome back to the Power Hour. Thank you very much, Jack. Yes, I have made my return. I said on a previous podcast that I would conjure up some sort of scheme to get John out of the control room and get me back in power. And lo and behold, here I am. Here I kept are. my promise. And we should we should clarify because John's been in and out. John, the, John, there's nothing. Uh, John's not off doing John Pop stuff. We just because today is amongst is today your last day at Heritage or is this week your last week? So today was my graduation ceremony, but Friday is the official last day. Okay, so we wanted to get you back in here because you did. Did such a good job oh, you when John was out, so um, wanted to bring you back in for one last hurrah with the Power Hour. So, Sean, how are you today? I am I am wonderful because, like I said before, I just graduated, so I received my official Heritage Foundation diploma. This time that I have spent here, the last 14 weeks, have been phenomenal. I have made wonderful friends with people, friendships that are going to last a lifetime. I've talked to a lot of great people. You know, not all of them my friends, of course, because you can't be friends with everybody, but a lot of great people. And this has opened up a lot of doors for me. I just recently had an interview. I won't say any names here, but I had a interview with someone's chief of staff on the Hill. So I'm very oh, nice. excited about that job opportunity. Well, and It's that de- that degree or diploma that, you know, Pete... Things like you know, these things come from Harvard or wherever. Uh, they're worth something, I guess. But one from Apparently. Heritage, baby. Now you're talking. Yes. Now we're t- you see, the degree I got from Rutgers University was completely useless, but the Heritage Foundation, right. that means something. I've right. gotten more out of the last 14 weeks than I did out of the four years I spent at Rutgers. There's <laughs> right. formal education for you. We, <laughs> I won't get into my thoughts about formal education. If people hear the way I talk and the English I use, they probably know what I think about formal education. <laughs> but that's not here nor there. <laughs> it is the holiday season. That is what is both here and there. And I love it. Something about it brings out the kid in me. My daughter loves to put up decorations. Now, our house isn't quite like the one on Christmas vacation. Though both my daughter and I certainly wish it was. What I want to know from you, Sean, do you decorate? Like, What's, what's sort of your approach to house decoration? Well, as of right now, I can't decorate anything because I'm living in an apartment that I will no longer be living in in a short few days. But I take the lazy approach when I'm at home living with my parents, which is my dad does. No kidding. Of course, I help him put up the decorations. I would never I would never allow my father to just simply put up the decorations without my wonderful creative input. So I take part in it. We usually put up lights around the rim or the edge of the roof of the house. We'll put something around the door, you know, like a wreath or something like that. So when you have your own house. Do you think you'll decorate it? Oh, absolutely. You yeah. said uh, you said Christmas Vacation. Is that the movie with Chevy Chase? It is. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. We need something like that. We need to. That's a dumb question, by the way. No. no well, <laughs> well, no. I just wanted to make sure. Listen. I mean, I'm a younger guy. My generation is not too familiar with that movie, though. I actually did watch it recently, but it, it rung a bell, and I, I wanted I to say clarify. Like, like Elf. Is that your generation? If I said um, we'll put some 
I think it is more, yeah, yeah. my generation speed. But, yeah, yeah, Christmas vacation. I want to use up so much power that we just turn off all right. of the surrounding area. That's a good reference to what we're talking about today. Now, mm. we actually have a conversation to get to, so I'll, I'll quit messing around. But first, I want to point out our email address, which is thepowerhour at heritage.org. That's thepowerhour at heritage.org. Shoot me an email. We get lots of good feedback. I want to hear from everyone. Um, let me know what you thought of how, how we're doing, if there are topics you want us, want us to discuss. In fact, one of the topics we're going dis- to discuss today, a lot of folks have said they want to hear more about. So email us at thepowerhour at heritage.org. And then, Sean, do you know yet where people can find us? You know, as you started that sentence, I realized, oh, my God, he's going to ask me the question again. <laughs> Lo and behold, he did. Uh, I haven't been here for, I think, what, two weeks now? I haven't uh-huh. been the producer, so no, unfortunately, I don't have that information. All right. man. Maybe it's just because I truly don't care about your show, Jack. No, <laughs> That's kidding, the way I'm starting kidding. to feel. That's the way I'm starting. <laughs> you can find The Power Hour wherever you get your podcasts, things like Spotify or iTunes, wherever you get your, your podcasts, or you can uh, search Google The Power Hour and Heritage Foundation. We're found on the, um, the Heard It Heritage feed. So those are all places that you can you can find us. And make sure when you do, you subscribe. That way you don't have to look for us every time. We will just show up in your wherever your, your podcasts show up. And the truth is, Jack, I knew all of that. I was just testing you. Right. I wanted to make sure you knew your own show. Right. I barely do. I barely do. <laughs> now, Sean, as you know, the United Nations is right now conducting their little uh, annual global warming conference this week over there in the United Arab Emirates, the so-called... COP or Conference of the Parties. These are the so-called parties being signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or as I like to call it, the UN Framework to scare the dickens out of us, scare the dickens out of us all in such a way that we're willing to hand everything over to the government to save us. Do you follow that? Yes. I'll tell you, I'm going to get serious here for a moment. Oh, boy. (laughs) Kind of serious. What really disgusts me about this whole thing is how it's permeated almost every aspect of society. And they framed it almost as a religious doctrine. Like, if you don't buy into it, somehow you're rejecting their deity. They just shun you. There's no discussion, no debate. I mean, Kamala Harris just gave a speech reinforcing this entire, na- na- this entire narrative that we're facing an existential crisis and that we, well, they, must fight back against people like us who they allege are denying science. And it all is just sickening, to be, honest, to be honest with you. It's so bad, it's making me twitch. It's like they've been overtaken by some sort of disease like climatosis. It's that bad. And to think about what it's doing to younger generations, to be inundated with this gloom and doom every day, from every direction, and to be ostracized if you question the orthodoxy. I mean, it's not only creating a generation or generations at this point of anxiety-ridden kids, but it's teaching them not to speak up, to comply, or to pay the price, regardless of what happens with energy policy. Continuing down this road will ultimately transform America into something it ne- was never meant to be. It will suck away that spirit that makes America special, and that's why we have to keep fighting it. So true. There you so go. So true, Jack. Anyway, that's what, that's, that's what I think about it. One of the problems is how we communicate it. I think we need new avenues of communication. People like Ayn Rand and George Orwell, they understood that. They used compelling fiction to warn us about the dangers of authoritarianism and the virtues of liberty. 
If only someone would do that with this issue. Well, as it turns out, Sean, there is just such an author. And guess what? I'm guessing it's not me. Well, it could be because we have him here with us today. Oh. But it's not you. <laughs> it's not you at all. We're actually going highbrow today. Oh. We have a novelist on our hands. Like a dude that writes actual novels, not pamphlets, not long emails, actual novels. And he's funny. Or at least his books use humor to help carry the message. We'll decide as we get into the conversation whether or not he's actually funny. But Yeah, I'll be the judge of that. <laughs> I'm teasing him, of course. At any rate, as we get into the conversation, you'll see why bringing a novelist into this discussion makes sense for the Power Hour. So without further ado... I introduce to our Power Hour audience, Mr. John Pepper. John, welcome to the Power Hour. Well, thank you, Jack. That's quite a setup. I, I feel like I'm sitting uh, in a dunk tank right now, ready to <laughs> plop into the water. <laughs> no, 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 there will be no plopping into water, I promise you. We, our intention here is never to, um, to make our guests look bad. We're here to have a good conversation. And if I was ever going to try to plop someone into the the tank i would have let them know beforehand and you didn't get that message from me no not at all no not at all of course no i appreciate it. that was a very nice uh, setup and uh, and i appreciate it very much and it actually caught the spirit of what i'm trying to do which is communicate about this issue in a different way than what people are normally accustomed to john i want to ask you we are definitely going to get to the book um but i want to sort of ease into it a little bit because i want to hear more about you and your career, or maybe even I should say careers, because I introduced you as a novelist, but you've done so much more. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what got you to where you are now. You know, what, what's your experience? What, what has informed your perspective? Well, I've been all over the uh, communication sphere uh, as a journalist, first of all, as a reporter, and then as a columnist for the Detroit News, where I wrote columns three days a week for 10 years covering business and politics and the intersection of the two which kind of leads also to the book that we're going to be talking about. But I also um, was a publisher out in Ann Arbor, Michigan, working for a venture capitalist by the name of Rick Snyder, who later became the governor of Michigan. And I was, uh, I was publishing about the commercialization of nanotechnology. So I was very interested in technology and how it might advance the world and society and so forth. I, I went on to um, go into corporate communications and handle communications for the C-suite at Ford Motor Company. And uh, so I was in the automotive industry for five years, then went to Hess Corporation in New York, an integrated energy firm at that particular time, learned a lot about oil and gas. And in both those companies also uh, learned a lot about how companies are really struggling with these issues that are constantly in their face about climate change and what they can do about that. Uh, in the past 10 years, I've run a consulting firm in New York City here to advise businesses on how to deal with difficult issues and challenges that they may face. Uh, I'm currently sitting in my office in the World Trade Center. Uh, and uh, in the mornings, I get up early, 4 o'clock in the morning, when I have a book to write, and I start writing. And um, this book that we're going to talk about today is the fourth in my series called Fossil Feuds. And it's, it all centers around a family that are descended from an industrial tycoon in the early 20th century by the name of Homer Crow set up his firm, his energy firm in Lower Manhattan, right next door to Standard Oil Company. And his descendants are now running the show and facing a lot of pressure, a lot of challenges from various interest groups, politicians, 
competitors, even each other inside the family. And so um, that's that's my background. And I write about stuff that that I am passionate about and that I see uh, uh, issues out there or that, that play upon my own experience. So if I have a story to tell, it gets me up in the morning, gets me writing. So I want to get back. I want to get to the your use of humor and some influences. But since we started into the book, let's introduce the book. I haven't even done that yet. The book is Missy's Twitch. And um, it's a great story. And as you mentioned, it is part of a series. And I was wondering if you could um, give us sort of a, you, you, you gave us some of the context in which this book was produced. But can you give us an overview of what the story is? And then we can get more into some of the details of it without giving it away because we want people to go to Amazon or wherever they, wherever you buy your books and buy one. So sort of give us the, the pitch of the book. Well, actually, it goes back to, to kind of what you were saying when you were talking with Sean earlier, and that is about this fear, this fear-mongering that we have constantly in society about all the, all the catastrophic things that are going to happen to us because of climate change, supposedly. And it's used in every conceivable way usually by people who are either trying to show their virtue, how much they care about the world and the planet, and, and you and me, supposedly, uh, or they're trying to sell some sort of product, or they're trying to gain some sort of power. And I've seen that in my own neighborhood in New York, where they have put signs up, these ludicrous signs up on uh, lampposts saying, here's how high the water could go by 2050 <laughs> if we don't do something now. Mm-hmm. And if it went to that level... Uh, they want us to build walls for supposed resiliency. And what we would need really is not walls, we'd need an arc because it would require just massive raise and rise in sea level that doesn't happen. So come back to Missy's Twitch. These kids have been bombarded, they've been marinating in all this climate propaganda for so long. And as you know, some areas like New Jersey and, and uh, some universities are mandating that you cover so-called climate change. Uh, and I say so-called only because it's their interpretation of it. Right. But you cover that in your curriculum, and nobody can graduate without it. So here's Missy, who's a, a, a descendant of Homer Crow. She's sixth generation. She goes off to Yale. She studies gender studies. And her and her pals don't know anything about science, but they know they know how their friends think. And they are so freaked out about it, about climate change, and Missy in particular, because She's worried, what did her family have to do with climate change? Were they part and parcel of destroying the, the Earth? Um, Generational guilt. Absolutely. And so she develops this twitch. And uh, we've actually seen this with various uh, groups of young people before. There were, there were some girls in upstate New York not long ago who had, who had this twitch, and they won the Today Show, and nobody could explain what it was. And so we thought maybe it's environmental factors. <laughs> well, nobody ever, nobody ever did explain exactly what it was. So Missy goes to see a, um, a climate therapist, uh, actually just a regular therapist, though there are now hundreds of climate therapists in the country. But this therapist uh, diagnoses her disease as a conversion disorder. It is manifesting some anxiety into some physical manifestation, and um, in this case, a twitch. She calls it climatosis. Her friends, who are also twitching at this point, are, are alarmed, they're aghast, but they decide to spread the word about how dangerous this whole thing is. They put it on TikTok, it goes viral around the world. Naturally, this is uh, captured by politicians in Washington who poll test it overnight and say, hey, this climatosis is a winner for us, we can use this. 
and we can use Missy as a as a trophy here. I mean, imagine that a, a descendant of a, of a fossil fuels fortune turning against the industry. We can use her as an example of just how what bad things can happen uh, with climate change. So therein, therein lies the, the, the crux of the story, and thus begins Missy's journey to actually maybe start to really try to understand this issue a bit more, and uh, because it all is going to lead her to um, to have to take a public position, and that's making her uncomfortable as it because it's eventually going to turn against her family. That's the basic story, but yes, there are lots of uh, there are lots of illustrations of how they struggle with primatosis. One of the things we have in there, Jack, is a the girls are out in Nantucket. None of them are working yet because they're too they're too disabled by this twitching that they have. But they they are they are still uh, in control of their limbs enough to play a drinking game, just watching uh, television and seeing the news. And every time somebody says climate crisis, they have to drink a shot. If they say climate emergency, you have to drink two shots. If you have to, if they say climate apocalypse, then you have to drink direct, directly from the bottle. This is not a game, by the way. I would recommend that any of us play at work. Uh, <laughs> we would be, we'd be too hammered to do anything. And um, so, but it's, you know, when, what I do with this is kind of put a satirical lens uh, on this. I think I think so many of the claims are so outlandish, and some of the mentalities are so bizarre. I think they need to be lampooned. And of course, you never see anything like this on Saturday Night Live. All that humor goes one way. It's all directed toward some people, and the protected people never get it. So I have, for instance, earnest discussions uh, in the White House about what are we going to do about climate change, and how are they actually going to fight wars with, uh, with bombs that don't have any any carbon footprint, which is a pretty good question. Right. <laughs> how do you actually do that? But these earnest people in Washington... Well, I, I'll tell you how. I can answer that for you the same way you produce energy without a carbon footprint. Nuclear weapons. There you go. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Well, that, would, that would answer that question pretty fast and pretty emphatically. <laughs> yes. So, so um, but you know, they're, they're so earnest and they want to show how, how, you know, how much they care and Let's do, let's do symbolic things that will show our, our interest in climate change. So, for instance, they want to they put out the, um, the eternal flame on JFK's grave because, uh, you know, why not just put out a solar-powered little, uh, little flickering candle and call it, call it candle in the wind? And um, it won't go all the time, of course, because wind and solar are intermittent. That's the problem for the rest of us, too. But... It's, they do these symbolic gestures. They make a big deal out of it. And what was John Kerry doing the last few days? I mean, he was he was mouthing all these all these uh, latitudes about the coming apocalypse and the existential crisis. You know what the existential crisis is? Is there solutions? The solutions right. are the things that scare the, the Jesus out of me. Um, there's the there's the climate crisis. Yeah. I mean, they come up with so many bizarre ideas. Um, yeah. Did you? Well, by the way, yeah. did you see the story last week? It was an editorial in the Wall Street Journal about how we had a near meltdown of the grid last Christmas in New York. Mm -hmm. um, and this well, is that's a, what happens when you cut off all your na you get rid of the the nuclear power plant. You cut off all the all the natural gas pipelines. Like you're gonna get used to every Christmas. That's what you're gonna get. Exactly. It's happened five out of the last eleven years. 
and that we've come close to a catastrophe here. And if the gas ever goes out, it'll take months for them to, to relight all the pilots in this yeah. particular area. And if the grid, if the electricity goes out, um, it's going to be people are going to be burning things in homes to try to heat themselves. There'll be carbon monoxide. They'll be trying to leave here. It's a mess. Yeah, I mean, I want to get back to the book. But this issue is a real one that people I don't think have completely come to terms with. The fact of the matter is, is that if that you are on one hand, by virtue of government policy, forcing people to move towards electric so you're increasing demand while at the same time diminishing their capacity to produce electric how they think you're going to do anything but create blackouts and literally push us back to the time of of cavemen i don't know what other conclusion you have and it's really it's really frustrating and i'll just say one last thing the problem is not only that in and of itself is a problem but the fact is we all know that the elitists the rich they'll have their generators they'll be able to do their thing and everyone else will just there will be nothing to do but do what you just said, which is burn whatever you can get your hands on to survive. Exactly. Exactly. No, that that is exactly it. You're going to push all these people into electricity that we won't have. I mean, all this activity, all the things that they've done over the last 20, 30 years to supposedly move us to renewables have not changed the percentage of fossil fuels that are used and how they're used. I mean, right. in this particular area where we are nearly, where we nearly hit this meltdown, Wind is like 1.9% of the base load, right. and, and solar is like 1%. And guess what happens in the winter? Um, you have nine hours of sunlight a day, and the, the solar farms can get covered in snow. Right. And the, and the, wind can, the wind turbines can freeze up with ice. So, you know, it's just, it's just a poor strategy, and it, it, it makes you wonder. And as the characters in my book, um, some of them speculate, one of them speculates in particular, Maybe the goal here is scarcity, so that they can then right. control it and then uh, dollop it out as they see fit to their allies. I, I think it's a. I think if that's a talk about an existential crisis, there's one right there. So you you talk about a number of themes in this book that I wanted to sort of get your views on the the, the role that these themes play, why you think they're important, and how they fold into the book. And I just have a couple of them that I jotted down here. One. And you've alluded to this already, but corruption. There's a lot of corruption or potential for corruption in this book. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and what you see, I think different people come at it from different uh, areas and different perspectives. And one of those is the circular nature of um, people of subsidies and tax breaks going to favored industries selected by the government that in turn turn around and give donations back to the politicians. I mm -hmm. mean, this is, this is a time-honored tradition. It is a terrible one, but it leads to incredibly bad decisions. Look at, the, look at what's going on with how they're pushing these EVs down our throat prematurely. I mean, mm -hmm. EVs seem to work for some people. They're fine in urban environments and people who don't have worries about range anxiety or things like that. And they're fine for people who have the money and who don't mind taking a taxpayer subsidy. And they tend to be fine for people who have two other uh, gas cars. Yes, yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, when I was at when I was at Ford, we were on a path to build a lot more hybrids, which had mm -hmm. combination of gas and electric, and that seemed to make sense because you wouldn't have to worry about you know if you're driving across the country, you could actually stop for gas. And right. But now they've said no, we're all in on EV because that's going to be better for the planet. Well, uh, you've discussed this on your show many times, and 
is it really? I mean, when you look at it in total, it doesn't right. really make any sense. But there, but when you speak about corruption, there's there are a lot of businesses out there who look at this whole thing, this whole issue of energy, and say, you know what, disruption of the old way of the fossil fuel business is not necessarily a bad thing for us. There's opportunity in here. Right. Especially if you can get guarantees that you're going to make some money at a certain level. And the risk, you're going to be de-risked in your investment. So it's just, the game is, the game is rigged when the government gets involved to the extent that it has. And it's distorting the market and it's distorting the whole supply-demand thing. But you, you're seeing what's happening right now with EVs. Everyone's going to be cutting back. There are layoffs. Uh, they're slowing down their projections of how many of these things are going to sell. Another aspect of this, you talked about the circular nature of it. Another one, another piece of that that I think folks don't often talk about is that once you start subsidizing these things, and the politicians are fully aware of this, so are the industries who take the subsidies. They create jobs, they're government jobs essentially, but they create jobs, and then now you have a constituency for those subsidies. Now the the, the industries and politicians are put, they create this dynamic where if you take away the subsidies, then you're quote unquote killing those jobs and it makes it virtual it's one of the reasons getting rid of the subsidies is virtually impossible you need someone with real political w will and real political spine to go after these things and there's so few of those people which is why we we get just layer after layer after layer of this garbage in our economy uh, absolutely and, and to find somebody who is going to stand up to this is very difficult as you mentioned in your uh, precede uh, our conversation you talked about how this is there's almost a religious fervor on this issue. And I, I see that here all the time. I'll talk to people about this issue. And they'll, they want to make sure that I understand. They'll say, you know, I believe in climate change. Right. So yes. I, I believe in it. It's, it's like, this is not a belief thing. This is, right. not, this is a question of, of observation and of science and so forth. And there right. are so many things that we don't understand about this issue. There are so many variables out there that we can't measure, we don't understand, we can't compute. And, and yet we still have this great certainty uh, in terms of our policy and the things that we are, we are doing to address the issue, despite the fact that we don't understand it. That bothers me. <laughs> that and and those, me. those complex systems, whether it's the environment or the economy or whatever the complex system is, are the very things that the government is worse at managing. <laughs> it's Absolutely. Like, it's like we have, w whether it's nature or the... Um, the underlying natural aspects of the free market. Nature is really good at organizing these really complex things. Government stinks at it. We've seen every time it tries, it leaves us worse off. Yet you have these politicians and these entire interest groups who continue to use government to consolidate power to try to control these complex systems, which they always fail at, and they're failing again right now. They don't have the information or the intelligence. I mean, look at right. artificial look at artificial intelligence. What does that what does that depend on? It depends on massive amounts of data. It requires all kinds of the more information you have, the more you, you can make a better decision. But government sitting in a very in their own cubicles in Washington or Albany or wherever they are, uh, talking to a few of their friends, they have very limited understanding of what is going to be um, accepted in the marketplace. The market can decide. It's pretty. It's very rational and right. uh, in aggregate, and it'll figure out the right solutions. I think ultimately we could decide on EVs as the as the way to go in the future. But if we're not, we're a long way from there now. We don't have the battery 
know, storage capability, we don't have the infrastructure. It doesn't make sense for a lot of reasons, but but we're forcing it prematurely, right. and that's why it's destined to not work. I mean, that's one of the problems that I think that they miss, they being the policymakers who try to force these things down our throats, is that if they want EVs to be successful, the best thing they can do is back off and, and force the EV manufacturers to produce vehicles that people actually want to buy, make them compete. You mentioned earlier that it's not about disrupting the hydrocarbon industry that's a problem. We should invite that. We should invite competition. If someone can figure out a better way to produce energy, then we should all be for it. So often I get accused, and I'm sure you do as well, of being in the pocket of gas and oil. I can tell you, you can look at my bank account and be rest assured I'm in no one's pocket. I'm not for or against any energy, any energy source per se. I'm for Americans having access to affordable, clean, abundant, reliable energy. I don't care really where it comes from. I exactly. I'm agnostic on that view as well. I, I really don't. I don't care. I don't have any particular dog in this fight. Um, what I do have a dog in is a is a successful society and a and a free society that can move around clearly and has economic development and doesn't worry about where the juice is going to come from if they want to plug in their TV set or whatever it is that they want to put in the wall. So for the government to sit here and make these decisions on things like, well, you need to use electric stoves as opposed to gas, it doesn't make any sense. The market right. will eventually decide that. Right. And, um, but they're rushing it because they have various constituents that they need to please in order to sustain their own positions in office. Now, I want to change subjects a little bit on these themes. And this is one we've touched on a little bit, but... I think it's profound in how you addressed it, or it's a profound issue, and you addressed it, and your book addresses it. And I want to throw it out there and see what sort of your thoughts are, which is this sort of impact of societal narratives, whether, you know, we, we saw with COVID, and I'm not getting into, you know, I'm happy to, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not forcing conversation with you on COVID, and, but, but there was a societal narrative associated with that. We certainly see it with global warming. We see it with a number of different things. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on these societal narratives, how that fits into your story, and why that is a theme of your work. Well, part of it is, um, is a bit of frustration that certain ideas and concepts are so pervasive in society and people don't understand them. And this climate issue is certainly at the, at the top of the list. I understand why it is the way it is. First of all, average folks going about their day don't have time to look at the kind of charts and graphs and, and testimony to Congress and all the kind of stuff that I looked at and research in my book and that you've studied for years. And so they have to go by what they're hearing. And what, they, what do they hear? They hear from their friends. They hear from the media. In the media and popular culture generally, there is a blackout on information that is contrary to the dominant themes of the so-called climate change discussion. And they own it. The culture, I called it, I called it uh, in a discussion with somebody else I was talking to, I said, it's the green wall. I mean, if you take search engines and news media and popular culture, literature, movies, education, and so on, it all goes one way. And there, there are really important voices out there of, that express skepticism about uh, the conclusions that policymakers have come to on this issue. 
they are not present in the press. Instead, it's the same people. It's that hockey stick guy out of Penn State, and it's uh, different people who have these ideas. They're, they're talked about all the time. And as I looked into it further, what really bugged me was how much uh, the media in particular had bought in. Essentially, I had done a podcast with somebody, and I made the point about how the UN uh, was upset that its view on climate change was not showing up more prominently in search engines. So we went to Google and said, Google, we need to unite on this. So sure enough, if you, if you Google climate change, the UN's view on it comes up number one. And after the podcast was done and they put it on uh, YouTube, well, what did YouTube do? Well, YouTube is a subsidiary of Google. They slapped a disclaimer on it. Climate change is blah, 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 <laughs> according to the United Nations. So I mean, ridiculous. The, the various thing I was saying, yeah, the, the exact same thing I was saying. So, uh, but the media has also been handed, they're actually handed talking points by um, this organization called uh, Covering Climate Now. And Covering Climate Now is a joint project of, among others, the Columbia School of Journalism, which passes out the most prestigious awards in journalism, the Pulitzer Prizes. Well, they're telling you, if you want to cover climate change, here's all you have to say about it. And they, they give you handy-dandy tips on how to cover every issue and tie every issue that you write about, no matter what it is, to climate change. And here's how you can say it. Here's the wording you should use. Here's, but they don't ever talk about the science. That's just, that's just gone. It's simply just trust us and um, here's, the, here's the narrative that you can feel safe in using and nobody's going to call you an idiot. And if you start paying attention, you start seeing the um, same language being used across media platforms. So it's so obvious exactly. that it's being coordinated at some level. And I don't even know if they know that it, they're being coordinated, but they certainly are. Well, and I think they feel there's a lot of groupthink in the media, as we know. And I think in newsrooms, I've, I've been there. I, I know how that kind of works. Nobody wants to be seen as not cool in the newsroom. I mean, you kind of want to be with the smart people. And what do those smart people over there think? You don't want to look like an outlier. Um, and so there's a great deal of conformity, and people are quick to accept the, the, the wisdom of others on this in newsrooms. And unfortunately, they just have it wrong. They are just, they've, they've gone over to this side where they've declared that everything is reached consensus, 97% agree. Uh, there's no more room for debate. Uh, this is the science has spoken. Well, that's not, of course, as you know, how science works. Science is, is a continuous process of discovery, and, and they just they just called it out and said, no, no, no more needs to be known. You just need to start doing stuff. Well, I like to point out to them every time they say that, since we have figured it out, we can no longer spend the billions of dollars of taxpayer money to research climate because. You know, that's a done done deal now. So let's do something else. Well, they are addicted to that juice, as you know. I mean, I I, I know I know. In part of my research, I, I discussed some of this with a with a professor of some repute, and um, she informed me that you know don't mention my name in public. I mean, the people at my university are scared to death that they don't want to rock the boat. Um, the funding is coming in. This is the gravy train. Don't don't mess with it at all. And so I respect that. I understand that people's yeah. livelihoods are at stake. I don't happen to. I'm in a position in life where I've had a 
you know, I'm in the I'm in the fourth quarter of my career, and um, probably inching toward the uh, two minute warning. But but the uh, but for folks who are earlier in their career, mid career, and so forth, they do have to be concerned about that. They can be ostracized. I have a I have a section in the book, and this is Twitch, about one of my characters meets a barista who he recognizes as a as a uh, former professor um, at a prestigious university. It's like, well, what are you doing here? What happened was he had written a piece for the Wall Street Journal, and um, it caused a lot of grief and anxiety at his university, and they denied him tenure and booted him out. And now he meets on a regular basis with a support group of other people who are ostracized from finance, law, and so forth in the basement of a church in Manhattan <laughs> to try to try to lift their spirits and say, can we find jobs because we're blackballed? We went against the dominant religion and uh, of our time, the, the great the great secular religion of our time. So it's a, I get it. It's a, it's a concern. And there's no, for a lot of people, there's no percentage in jumping out and saying something contrary to what the prevailing wisdom is. Well, that's one of the themes that I think come out in your book, this notion, I guess there's this thread where people of unrelated professions take advantage of the broader narrative to advance their, their own self-interest. And there's a, a passage here that I, that I highlight. Can I, do you mind if I read a quick passage? Yeah, sure. Yeah, please think, do. That I think um, illustrates this. It is, um, all right. I've never uh, live read a passage from a book, so if I sound horrible doing it, everyone, I'm sorry, but I'm going to give it the old college try here. They had transformed their pet cause into a cultural and commercial commodity in entertainment, investment advice, legal advice, media, and now psychotherapy. Missy was just the latest exhibit in the case for cat catastrophe, but she surely wouldn't be the last. The climate crisis was bought and sold like Coca-Cola, M&Ms, and Broadway shows. I thought that little passage there really demonstrated how this corruption, the big government, the, the societal narrative all sort of comes together. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. And I kind of thought that very thing when I wrote that part. And that's when, that's when one of my characters ventures down onto Times Square as I recall, and uh, encounters the climate countdown clock, which is uh, ticking off to doomsday, and uh, he sees what's going on. And, and there's, by the way, there's sponsorship messages on the doomsday clock uh, brought to you by so-and-so, and then there's an advertisement for a law firm. He sees, uh, he sees people coming out of a Broadway show that is the hurt, kind of the climate change experience, where they... Um, they heat the people up in the first row, and they, <laughs> they hit them with fire hoses and so forth, give them the sense of the climate, and, sure. and they're paying money for it. But yes, I think there are a lot of there are folks who are looking at a certain point. That is the question a lot of people face, which is, if this is the dominant narrative, it doesn't pay me to go out and, and say anything differently. In fact, it could really hurt me. Um, how about if I, what do I do? Should I just go along with this and, and try to make some money from it? And I think, frankly, that's where a lot of folks are in in business. Is kind of like, you know what? Maybe there's an opportunity here. I can, I can teach a course on how to be green. I can I can come up with some sort of new uh, new product that will fit this green agenda. Whatever those things are, there's lots of opportunity. I can do audits of companies if I'm an accountant. I can do your uh, your environmental audit. Are you contributing to climate change? And of course, the thing about that is that nobody can actually tell you. They couldn't quantify exactly. That's why ESG, I think, is amazing theory. They can't give you data that says what you're actually doing and what the cost is. Right. 
that one of my favorite questions to ask folks is, uh, all right, you want to do this thing. How much is it going to reduce the temperature? <laughs> Why are you asking me that? I could, uh, you know the answer to that is zero. It's not going to make any difference. <laughs> it's, it's so funny. Even if you buy into the alarmism, I, my colleague here at Heritage, Kevin Dyeratna, who, by the way, is going to be on a uh, the, either this the next podcast or the one after that. So everyone get ready for that. He has run, he's rebuilt the UN, um, the UN climate models, and he's able to show if the United States stopped producing carbon dioxide tomorrow, it would have virtually zero impact on climate, even using their, uh, the, the, their data and their models and assuming the worst case scenarios. It's really unbelievable. I've, I've, I've seen you quote that in a couple of pieces you've written, and I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And yet, and yet, here we are. Here we are still pursuing these policies despite that. And the joke is, the running joke, which everyone understands, is that China's building coal plants as fast as it can make them, and India's as well, because they have an imperative to grow their economies. Right. And, and likewise, you know, one thing that really is intriguing to me is this concept of people who are on the left, who are really against this whole notion of colonialism, really want to do, really want to colonize Africa in terms of energy and say, yeah. you know what, we're here to help you and you're not going to make the same error that we did, so your energy is going to be sustainable. You get that wooden dung and stuff like that that you're using to cook with. We're going to get you windmills and solar panels. And it's like, no, that's not going to work. That's the criminal aspect of this. I don't know legally criminal, but certainly morally criminal, that that this movement is trying to impose on these people who have struggled forever, um, trying to impose on them this notion of green energy that will virtually ensure that they never modernize. And that just should be unacceptable to everyone, especially when you juxtapose that against the fact that absolutely nothing they do will have any impact on climate, even if you buy into the climate alarmism. It's just unbelievable to me. Unbelievable. I, I agree. I think I think the moral bankruptcy of that position is is astonishing. But but there we are. Um, but going back also to your point again about the uh, you know how this how folks are capitalizing on this climate alarmism. Uh, I looked at different things like movies and TV shows and novels and so forth. And all the novels that I saw about there's a, there's a whole group of novels about climate change, and it's even called climate fiction or cli-fi. And um, they're all, they tend to be dystopian and it's a sad world and mm -hmm. trying to survive in this horrible place and the water's rise, the creek's rising and you know, the sky is falling and all this sort of thing. And we're just trying to, trying to live in this horrible, horrible world. Um, I call my book Rye Cli-Fi because it's, uh, it's poking fun at this stuff and saying, you know, wait a second, this doesn't really make sense it doesn't add up and um it's it's interesting too jeff that the climate change in their view is always bad that's right. that's rule number one it's just right. it, there's nothing good about it you can't have a nice day in fact even in this <laughs> this thing called climate covering climate now they even guide people at news organizations and websites and say look if they're doing a story about climate don't show people out there having fun on a nice day. Show them in distress. And it's like, right. 
really? And then, of course, you have to show the weather maps that show that there's not just a high pressure center moving over this particular area, but it looks like the whole area has been incinerated. It's now, <laughs> the map is brown, it's charcoal gray, it's just ash. But this is all part of part of what they're trying to do, and it's all it's very much coordinated and uh, among like-minded individuals. I don't think it's a massive conspiracy per se, but I do think it's like-minded people joined together for different uh, yeah, I don't think it's a massive conspiracy, but I think it is a symptom of what we were talking about earlier, this impact of societal narratives. You have this societal narrative and everyone just sort of falls into place because I think there are some people who are real believers, but most people are just trying to get along. And if and they're just sort of doing their thing. And if everyone says it's global warming, then it must be global warming, whatever, I got to get to work. And it allows these things to take hold and, and really have a negative impact over time. Um one, one of the things I wanted to mention, so this is a fictional, this is a novel, it's fictionalized, um, but let's be honest, John, in a couple of places here, it's pretty thinly veiled, <laughs> yes. pretty thinly veiled. Yes, I've been accused, I've been accused of that, <laughs> so I'm saying this is getting a little too close to reality here, but uh, so, yes. I, I want to play a little game here, I, I want to read one more passage, and uh, hey, Sean, you can play this game. I'm going to read one passage here. Now, remember, this is fiction I'm going to read, but this is my favorite passage in the book, not because of its profoundness, but because of, because for other reasons. So can I, I'm going to read this. All right? Let's do it. Here we go. All right. Let me take a drink real quick. I want my voice to be, to be right. I'm going to... Don't take two shots now because of climate <laughs> right. emergency. Yeah. All right, right. All right. Here we go. And, and you'll uh, and you'll set you'll set this too, Jack. Right, just the the context is they're in the White House, right? They're in right, the Oval the, Office, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. But but they would they would the, the person hearing this would know this anyway. All right, here we go. Shrika blinked hard several times and nodded. Her lips dry, her mouth agape. Why, yes, I would like to make this point because I think it's very important. She cle cleared her throat, and that point is that the root cause of climatosis is climate change, and climate change, as we know. All too well is about climate, she said gravely. She leaned forward and raised her index finger to draw attention to her point. But, and a lot of people don't get this, it's also about change. <laughs> and here's the best part. It's also about change. Hear what I'm saying? And when, when you put those concepts together, climate and change, what do you get? You get climate change. So you start by zeroing in on the problem. And that leads you to the solution, whatever that is. <laughs> very profound. Ta-da! Very profound. Yes. <laughs> right, yes. That's so good. I hope that I gave it, I hope on my fifth try there, I gave it some justice. No, I'm sorry I, that I struggled there to begin with. You did, but I wonder who you were alluding to. I, who, I can't quite Sean, who, who was I alluding to? Hmm. I'm going to go ahead and say Kamala Harris. Ooh. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> so good. A word it's salad. So it's a word salad. Yes. It, yeah. <laughs> you absolutely nailed that one. Um, so anyway, I, th there are lots. If, if, if you like that kind of humor, everyone, and you like that. Um, anyway, there, there's lots of that, but it's not just that. That's only part of it. There's also insight that, that also brings um, it. it, it shines a light on the hypocrisy on what's going on. It's really well done. Now, we're sort of coming up to the end here, John. I want to I want to mention one th more one more thing about the book I want to I want to get to is you go through this story and there is ultimately an, an awakening in the book. And I'm wondering if um if this awakening was 
was, in, in your view, is just about the story? Like the story needed that awakening in order to resolve itself? Or is this something that you see society happening in society? And, and yeah, do you think that that will ultimately happen in society? Is that, are you making a prediction here? I, I ho- let me put it this way. I hope so. I mean, we've had 50 years of failed predictions on climate change that haven't quite shaken the faith of people because there's so much there's so much domination on this issue by people who have been pressing a particular point of view. I am hoping, though, one of my fervent hopes of this book is that they will people will at least be prompted to ask more questions. Ask questions about this. Don't assume that. What you're hearing, uh, or what you've just come to believe, casually or otherwise, is necessarily true. And uh, I would like to think that people will see what's going on elsewhere in the world. They'll begin to understand that they're having no impact on this stuff. And I'm also hoping that they'll really see what the true climate crisis is, which is all these policies that they're pushing on us. And my, I have a reason for optimism here. One is what I see going on in, in Europe and in places like uh, the UK, where net zero seems to be collapsing. Net zero is a fiasco and a disaster. It have no impact on the climate, but it, it leads to disastrous policies. And I think as people are starting to now confront some of the actual policies that, they're, that we're having in the U.S., they'll begin to ask questions and say, is this really necessary? I want... I want people to ask two questions, and it's along the lines of what you just said, Jack. What will this get us, and what will it cost us? Yeah. And if they start asking that, they might start to tell these both these politicians out of office and say, "Get out! You right. don't belong here. You're not qualified to lead us. You're just you're just padding the the pockets of your friends. We're getting back to that corruption issue. We're keeping you in office and for whatever motivations some of those friends have. So that, anyway, that's my, that's my hope. It, I would say it's a stretch to say I'm optimistic that, that people are going to really uh, come around to this point of view, but I do see cracks in the edifice of this climate industrial complex as people start to see things like, oh, we were promised all these EVs, and, and this is going to provide all these jobs, and yet they're doing layoffs now. And... Right. Um, and you have states like my home state of Michigan, which is going all green. This is a potential policy disaster because what they're going to do is make that state much less competitive in terms of manufacturing. What does manufacturing look at? What are the big things they look at in terms of siting plants and facilities? There's energy costs. And you yeah. can't just crank those up and say everything's going to be fine. And, and you know, Michigan's really a sad story because we all know the – we've all seen what happened to Michigan in the past – but now it's reemerging, like it's it, it is there to re to to retake its position as one of the nation's leading manufacturing states, and now they're going to impose this horrible green energy policy on that state. And and, and I, I I know a little bit about the the Michigan situation because I wrote a piece about it a few months ago. And though Michigan in in sort of American. Um, in American history, when we think about Michigan, we think about a, a manufacturing um, leader, and certainly it is. But Michigan's manufacturing has gone up and down, subject to bad policy. And here it is on its way back, ready to dominate, and the government's just going to come in and screw it up. It's really unbelievable. It is. It's, it, you couldn't have a dumber policy at this point in Michigan's uh, 
life as a as a manufacturing hub. It's the worst possible thing you can do. I mean, they've already had a disastrous run with the unions, which imposed massive costs on the automakers that, that forced them to, to cut their uh, profit um, forecast to the point where, uh, you know, General Motors is worth a fraction of what Costco is, for instance, right. or McDonald's. I mean, it's it's sad to see these uh, these titans of American industry being brought down to this level. And by the way, I don't blame the unions for getting what they what they could get. I mean, that's that's their job is to go out and get what they can for their workers. But what I do blame is that if if that's what they're going to be, the automakers are going to be saddled with. Why are you now going to also saddle them and their suppliers with these higher energy costs? Right. What that will do, Jack, is it'll require them to then go out and create special exemptions, special deals. You're exempt. Don't worry about it. We'll we'll excuse you. But as usual, that'll stick it to the rest of the, the folks right. in the middle class. Right. So, John, I read the book. I thought it was great. My wife read the book. She thought it was great. My final question to you before we close up here is, did I miss anything? Did, are there points of the book that you think are important that we still need to discuss or that folks would want to hear about? No, I think we covered the landscape pretty well. I mean, I, I think the um, hopefully the enjoyment of this is not only in um, – is isn't kind of seeing some of this stuff illuminated in a way that is engaging and entertaining, and yeah. uh, but also that's uh, edifying. And um, yeah. you know, I shared the book before publication. I, I sent a copy to Dr. Steve Coonan, uh, the author of Unsettled, which is a bestseller on climate change. He's a NYU professor. I didn't know him, but I say hey, your book was very helpful in my research, and I, I was inspired by it. And so I see a copy. He loved it. So that was great. And like, like you, he shared it yeah. with his wife, which to me is a high compliment. <laughs> if you share it with your, right. with your loved ones, that's a, that's a good thing. And if they like it, that's try, even better. Yeah. I'm going to try to get my 14-year-old daughter to read it as well, but I'm not making any promises. <laughs> that's a challenge. I'm still trying to get my daughter to read it. Uh, but she's, <laughs> she's, a, she's a little busy with a baby at the moment, so but right. she's, she's got an excuse, and that's fine. Yeah. Well, one thing I don't know that I accomplished in speaking with you is I probably got too serious on the policy issues when I really wanted this to be to bring out the lighthearted nature of this serious issue. And that was one of the, I think, big victories of your book is the way you addressed it to make it accessible. Oh, that was one thing I wanted to ask you. Um, when you wrote this book, were you thinking of a younger audience for it? Because it reads in a way that is interesting to even, you know, someone to the extent I'm an expert. I'll just for, for lack of a better I've certainly been around this issue, but it also is was accessible to my to my wife, and I would th who's not an expert on these issues. And I would, I, as I was reading it, I thought my daughter would even be, um, it would be accessible to her. What was your audience? What were you thinking about the audience for it? I was thinking a general audience. I I, I was hoping, and I pitched it even on my website. I I pitched the fact that it's open for schools and, and libraries, and here are companies that are are you know providing it to schools and libraries, and um, so I was, I would like younger people to read it, and that would be my fondest hope. I think the audience that will appreciate it the most is probably a somewhat older audience because some of the cultural references are, are going to go back a ways. But also, I think people who have been around the block a few times may appreciate this. You know, one of the, one of the points I make in the book is that one of the characters exasperated about how, how young people today seem to think that any bad weather event is something recent that we created bad weather in the last few years with fossil fuels. And right. she just turns to somebody and says, didn't anybody ever see the Wizard of Oz? 
you know, <laughs> it was made in 1939. There were houses twirling up in the air. I mean, there, there's been bad weather forever, but they seem to think it's a recent invention. So I would like them to, I would like more kids. One reviewer on Amazon, by the way, said, I thought this book, he said, yes, it's funny, but what I would really do is this should be read by kids everywhere. He said, if I were a bazillionaire, buy a bunch of buy copies and flood the schools with this book and uh, to show kids a different point of view than what they're otherwise getting. You know, whether the teachers would actually share it with them or not, I don't know. But I thought that's a, that is a good thing. So I, yeah. But the whole idea was to make the topic itself accessible and understandable and really distill things down to, to concepts that are, are accurate, but... Um, don't go into too much technical detail, but it makes it uh, hard to read. Now, where's the best place to get the book? Is it Amazon, or do you recommend other places? Well, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, there are all kinds of chains that do it. Independent bookstores carry it. You order it You order it through the bookstore. So it's um, it's not typically, this is kind of the, the economics of, of bookstores these days and bookselling, but a lot of books are mostly are print-on-demand, and so you get them. You get them, but you get them over time. But you uh, order them through a particular bookstore. So I'd, I would check your independent bookstores first um, in the neighborhoods. Okay. I noticed on uh, a search here recently that it was um, it was uh, being searched in the, at a bookstore in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. I thought that was interesting. Interesting. I wonder who lives well, there. It certainly would make a good Christmas gift for sure. Um, so I would encourage folks to check it out. So, um, oh, I, I could talk to you all day. The last, the last question, the last relevant question I have for you is, um, we talked briefly about this was the fourth book in a series. I, I didn't know about the other three books. I haven't had a chance to read them, but it's my understanding that this is a, a, that this is the fourth book in this story. But the book does stand on its own. Would you encourage folks who like this book to to go ahead and get the other ones as well? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, for prequels, you know, they're they're prequels. They don't hit this this particular issue quite as hard. But the, right. the first book is more of a satire about life at the top of a corporation, a competition between a um, chief executive who's worked his way to the top and his boss, the chairman, who inherited his place at the top. And uh, the jealousies and the rivalries and all that sort of thing. It's very funny and and uh, some some dark humor in there. It seemed to be uh, people seem to enjoy it. The second book is uh, called Airs on Fire, and it's about um, warfare within the family. So here's this industrial family many generations later uh, with different views on what should happen to the company. And again, it takes a satirical look at some of their attitudes and views. The third book is called Green Goddess. And it's about the same company dealing, they're under pressure to transition to a new kind of energy uh, because fossil fuels are supposedly passe. And the funny thing is, is that the company is trying to do things like, um, you know, some renewable stuff and the environmentalists won't let them uh, for various reasons. They won't let, let the company get permits. One of the ironies of this whole renewable thing. But they settle on uh, fusion energy and they, they've got some lead, they've got some technology and fusion energy and they have some advancements. And so they try to make a demonstration project out of that that can show their green bonafides, hence the name Green Goddess. And uh, that leads to a demonstration at the Statue of Liberty, which I can see in my office window here. 
<laughs> and uh, so, but it's also it's also written in kind of the same vein, same sort of style. Uh, it does touch this climate issue and their exasperation with it and, and the pressures that they're under. But yes, it's um, the whole series is called Fossil Feuds, but you can read them independently. You don't need to start at, at book one of Turning Fortune and work your way through. Uh, as you say, Missy's Twitch does stand on its own, and uh, you guys go back and read the prequels if you like. But I do note that those books uh, continue to sell to the, uh, the early ones. Very good. So there you go. You have a whole Christmas extravaganza you can get for folks. I highly recommend <laughs> it. <laughs> yes. <All right. laughs> Well, thank you, John, for your time. Thank you to everyone who took some time out of your day to listen to the Power Hour. And please, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends and your family, your colleagues to check us out and email us. Remember, at the Power Hour, the Power Hour at org. Shoot me an email. Now, before we end, John, is there anything else that you'd like, uh, or anything that you'd like to point people towards, like social media or, or you, you know, that kind of thing? Do you have anything that you want to? The plug other than your book, which again, get at your local bookstore, at, at social or at Amazon, that kind of place. Yeah, yeah. I think I think certainly that look at your local bookstores. Um, the chains are helpful. The book is available in at least thirty countries, and I'm hoping also to get it in other languages next year at some point. Because I I have seen some commentary in places like Netherlands and, and in Sweden and so on. And, Probably nice to offer this book to them in their language, but I I would recommend some of the some of the websites out there that are alternative to the mainstream media. Certainly, uh, your website. Um, yeah, we'll link to it in the podcast description. Yep, yep. Daily Signal and and also, but also websites like theclimatedispatch.com, excuse me, climatechangedispatch.com, What's Up with That, uh, Climate Depot. There are lots of folks on Twitter that I found that were very knowledgeable about this particular issue, and they never are seen in the press. At all. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's a lot of there are a lot of there's a lot of good thinking out there, but you do have to look a bit and search a bit to find it. And um, hopefully, this will help make it easier for folks. Very good. Now, Sean. Yes. Do you have any final words? And by final words, I mean final words, because you're out of here. Oh, Soon. that's true. Wow, I, I didn't realize the gravity of the situation until now. Well, I'll just say for starters, I would really like a framed picture of that Kamala Harris quote. I want to put that in my bedroom. Very inspiring, very okay. profound. Okay. Um, I guess in terms of something other than that, since, yeah, I just remembered that this is my last time I'll be here. Although, you know, who knows where the future may take me. Maybe I'll find myself back at the Heritage Foundation, but I won't get ahead of myself. I'll just say uh, thank you, Jack, for having me on the show, for bantering with me. It's It's been fun. It's been a wild ride here at the Heritage Foundation. You've been great, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. And, um, yeah, I, I appreciate everything. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. John, thank you so much. I want to thank everyone who took some time to listen to us. I really appreciate it. Get the book, Missy's Twitch. It would make a fine Christmas present. Apparently there are, not apparently, there are three others in the series. Remember to email us at thepowerhour.org. One last time, John, thank you so much for being a guest. Thanks, Jack. It was my pleasure. A lot of fun. There you go, folks. See you next time.